When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome back to the Hockey News on the E podcast presented by BetMGM. My name is Jacob Stoller, your host from the Hockey News alongside Justin Cohn from the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. Coming to you live, uh, or not live actually, just ahead of Game 3 taking place Wednesday night of the Cali Cup Finals. Before we get all into that stuff, Justin, how are you? I'm good. Looking forward to uh, the rest of this series. It's been a bit of a shocker so far, so uh, you know, Great ECHL playoff hockey. We got uh, the Florida Everblades up two to nothing on the Idaho Steelheads so far. So it's it's going to be a good finish to that series. I was actually wondering this before we started. How many Kelly Cups have you covered, like on the scene? On the scene, just yeah. the one. Like the in, 20... in in person, just twenty twenty one. Now I have covered beyond that. I guess it would be another six finals at this level but you know you got to keep in mind that fort wayne has jumped around i i covered the old ihl then the uhl then the new ihl then the chl and now here we are in the echl uh but the great thing about technology is you can do a lot of this stuff uh from afar now and that's uh that's been one of the great things about the pandemic for me is that uh um We've been we found different ways to cover minor league hockey even if i'm sitting in my office in fort wayne Totally. So the Kelly Cup, uh, as I said before, Florida's up 2 nothing against the Idaho Steelheads. Game three is in Florida, game four as well. Let's kind of turn back the dial a bit and recap what we've seen so far. Let's start with game one, Justin. What did you see in, in the opening match? Yeah, so, you know, we have to remind everybody that uh, the Idaho Steelheads had an incredible regular season. You're talking about, you know, arguably the greatest regular season in the history of the league by most metrics. So I would say they came into this series as, as pretty substantial um, favorites, even though Florida is the defending champion. But in game one, I mean, it's been closely matched the whole way. Dawson Bartow, I think he was the guy that really got things going with a goal early for Idaho. And, uh, you know, it looked like they were doing pretty well. And then we get into the second period and Florida started to take a little bit more of the momentum away. Cole Moberg had a goal. Then Ryan Domowski came back from Idaho. Then Blake Winicky for Florida. And so it was a back and forth game. And then we get to overtime and a guy that we have mentioned many times before, Oliver Chow, he gets the winner for Florida in game one at Idaho. So that is always huge because what are you looking to do in any best of seven series if you are the road team? That is to steal one of those first two games. Florida able to do that in a back and forth game, and that gives them a ton of momentum as they went into game two. But really, uh, that first game was was a really exciting back and forth, end-to-end battle, terrific goaltending by both teams, um, even in the playoffs. That goal was scored uh, 14-06 into that first overtime. But both goaltenders, you know, we knew Adam Scheel of Idaho and um, Cam Johnson of Florida, 
they had both been tearing it up uh, in the first three rounds of the playoffs, and they did not disappoint in the opening of that series. And then game two, much of the same or, or shook out differently? Well, I, I thought game two was a little bit different. You could tell that Idaho was a little bit more tentative, I felt, from the start you know, knowing that, oh boy, you know, our, our, we're up against it now. But then there was this real, you know, feeling of relief for them because Matt Register and Matt Register of all the players in this series, he has the most experience in high leverage situations like this. He has been through it with many teams before, whether it was Allen, whether it was Toledo, whoever. So he's been in this situation, uh, one of the great all-time defensemen at this level. And he came out and scored uh, the assist were to Jordan Kawaguchi and Dawson Bartow. Bartow, again, he is a Dallas Stars prospect, and he is a guy that has really stood out for me uh, for Idaho in this series. So then Florida comes back, and so often I see this at this level. It's what happens in the last minute of a period and the first minute of a period. Seems like a small thing, but you have to close out periods really well. And I found that the best teams are the ones who do that. And so what did we see? Florida's Ashton Calder scores with just 20 seconds left in the first period. And that totally changed the dynamic of that game. Now, it was a power play. So Idaho had taken a couple late penalties and Calder scores. And then they go into intermission and they're able to sort of regroup. And then you come out in the second period. Florida gets back-to-back goals from Logan Lambden. We're going to talk a little bit about him later in this. And then got a goal early in the third period from Levko Coper. So then it looked like Florida was totally in command. But one thing we have learned about Idaho this season is you can't count them out. Remember, you go back to the first round, they were down two to nothing to Utah. And Idaho, it looked like they were maybe going to come back and force overtime. They get two goals, 21 seconds apart in the third period from Justin Miziak and Ty Pelton-Boyce. So it becomes a one-goal game at Idaho Locks on the line there. And then Florida's defense, which has been very good during these uh, postseason, they were able to come up, shut it down. Ben Masella, the captain, gets an empty net goal. Florida wins the game. And now they go back to Estero, Florida, with a 2 to nothing lead in a 2-3-2 formatted series. So I'm by no stretch of the imagination going to tell you that Idaho is out of it. But Florida, I mean, to go out there and win two games in Idaho where that is, that is a tough place to play. I think uh, was really impressive for the Everblades. Do we know how close Cam Johnson is to the record for most games in a ECHL season for a goalie? Like, I, do time. Not, I do because not. Because he's got but he's, 75 games played right now, and that's insane. That We'll have to look into that for next week. He's got to be up close. there. Because uh, think I, about it, 55 yeah. to begin with in ECHL is a lot for a goalie. And then combine that to playing every single playoff game. I mean, yeah. I, I'd be very interested. I'm sure we'll look into it to see how many other people have reached even close to that feat. Well, and remember, we talked last week about scheduling and the difficulties at this level when you play so many three games and three nights, four games and five nights. Now, Florida, maybe that's not quite as bad as it is in, say, the Central Division. But, yeah, to, to play that many games at this level with the scheduling the way it is is really impressive. Now, one thing I will say is that Florida hasn't had the worst scheduling I've seen uh, in the playoffs in terms of days off and whatnot. Now, they did play back-to-back nights last weekend to open this series. Of course, they've had a lot of travel, Florida going to Newfoundland, and then they got to get out to Idaho. So I'm not 
not saying it's been easy, but you know, Cam Jans- Cam Johnson is a gamer. Uh, but you know, you also have to make sure that you've got good backups and both these teams do. Absolutely. So, you know, shifting gears here just a bit, um, we had a big coast to coast kind of slate or notebook rather slated for last week. We kind of pushed over to this one as well. So let's kind of merge that together. Do coast to coast, Justin Cohn's news notes and quotes, starting with in your own backyard, Justin Fort Wayne, Ben Boudreaux out as head coach first, are you surprised or did you have a feeling this was coming? Well, I, I'm pretty close to the situation, so I'm not surprised in terms of, you know, I knew it was a possibility. You know, I sit next to Fort Wayne's owners uh, during a lot of the games and you can, I'm a big believer in body language and sort of things that you hear under the breath. And, and, you know, there was a lot of frustration from Fort Wayne's owners in terms of, a very mediocre record at home. And this is one of the most difficult places to play in the league. And, you know, Fort Wayne, it's not uncharacteristic for them to get 10,500 in the building for certain big games like New Year's Eve or Thanksgiving. They probably didn't have that many this year. Um, So the point I'm trying to make here is to most outsiders, people outside of Fort Wayne, they're going to look at Ben Boudreaux and say, holy crap, this is a shocker. How can you fire him? But you have to know some of the details. And one of the big things is how do you play at home? What is the level of inconsistency? Do they feel that this is sustainable? So I could tell all season long that ownership was getting more and more frustrated. So in that respect, I'm not shocked. But, whoa, I mean, to fire a coach two years removed from winning a Kelly Cup at this level, hasn't missed the playoffs. Uh, I don't remember the exact number is about maybe 45 games over 500 uh, over four years uh, has won three of five playoff series in his career to make a move like that sets the bar so high for the next guy, because what is the message that you're sending here? It seems like it's championship or bust. There's no other way to interpret that. And that's sort of my concern is, are you setting up the next guy for success? But You know, Fort Wayne, we were in a similar situation in this town in 2019. I know you're not going to know these people, but Gary Graham was the guy who was coaching Fort Wayne at that point. He had coached them for six years, had never missed the playoffs, had had some very good teams, had gotten to two conference finals. He was a Fort Wayne native, and they fired him. And it was like, at the time, how do you do that? How do you fire a guy who's never missed the playoffs at this level? And, And they said, well, we feel like, we could be better. <laughs> and they replaced him with his assistant coach and they did get better. So I guess you do at some level have to trust the process a little bit, but very surprising. Uh, I would think compared to most teams, I, I definitely, I mean, my phone was, was blowing up as soon as it happened. Like, wow, I can't believe they actually did this. Um, you know, but it, it's an interesting situation. I mean, there's so many things we could talk about with this. This guy's 38. I think he's going to, he may end up better for it depending on where he lands. Well, it was interesting because you had an article about possible replacements for Ben Boudreaux, and it was kind of, you know, you're kind of spitballing because we don't really know, for example, an AHL assistant, if they're interested in going down to take over a bench or, you know, a Troy Mann, if he wants a redemption tour, right? There were so many options you listed. But first, what makes an ECHL coaching job different than, say, an AHL coaching job? Like, what what else goes into it at the minor league level um, that kind of makes it, Sort of like a, a roll of many hats in a way. 
compared to an AHL head coaching job or assistant coaching job? Just so yeah, maybe the AHL, not the AHL specifically. I more so mean like, you know, when you're the head coach of the ECHL, it's a lot different than being just a head coach of a hockey team at professional level. There's other responsibilities. And I was curious if you could elaborate on what really yeah. those are. Yeah, I mean, you have to wear a lot of hats when you're a coach in the ECHL, but the biggest thing is you are in almost all cases in charge of player personnel. So it's so not one just army in a way, right? Like yeah. you're doing everything. Yeah. Now in Fort Wayne, that's not necessarily the case because they do have a hockey operations general manager. So he and the coach do team up, but they have basically um, transferred most of that power over the last, let's say seven years to the head coach. So to answer your question, I mean, you're not just dealing with X's and O's. You're not just dealing with the systems and the chemistry and figuring out the lineup. No, you've got to work on the player personnel. You've got to be doing a lot of recruiting. So the successful coaches are the ones who are doing a great job in June and July and August, just as much as they are in February to May. You have to put together the right team. You have to work your connections. You have to do background checks, essentially. So in other words, if an agent calls you and says, hey, I got a guy who's playing in the British Columbia Hockey League to be a perfect fit for you, and you look at the stats and you say, you know what? He does look pretty good. The bad coaches just kind of go off those stats. You know, the good coaches are picking up the phone and they're calling everybody they know who's connected to the BCHL and saying, what is this guy really about? So to get to circle it back a little bit to Ben Boudreau, some of the mistakes he made that caused his downfall were what he did last summer. The biggest one is a guy named Colton Point. Colton Point was an NHL prospect, definitely an AHL prospect. He was at the time a big get for Fort Wayne. He was going to be their co-number one goaltender with whoever they got from the Edmonton Oilers. Well, Colton Point shows up. He didn't look very good. I mean, he just, he didn't quite look like he was with it. He gave up some early goals and didn't start off well. And it kind of spiraled. He ended up retiring mid season. Now I don't mind saying I've heard from multiple people and I'll just say this. There were some signs that maybe he was not going to be having his best season this year. And the question then began, why did Fort Wayne not know that? Did they not do enough of their due diligence? And if that's the case, who does that fall on? That falls on Ben Boudreau even though his title is head coach. So I hope that answers your question. That's the biggest thing, but yes. Yeah, what you're teams... saying is ECHL coach equals scapegoat for everything. So you're telling everyone <laughs> anything that happens, mascots, ticket packages, head coach. Well, and not only that, here's another big thing. Things like work visas so that the guys could come from Canada or from overseas and be able to play here. A lot of these things do fall on the head coach, depending on crazy. Yeah. Depending on the team, you know, in Fort Wayne, the general manager takes care of all that in a place like Wichita. I could be wrong, but uh, Bruce Ramsey's probably got a huge hand in that as the head coach. So sometimes you see things like that, like a, they sign a, a guy and then he never plays. And you're like, why? Well, they had work visa issues. Well, sometimes that does fall on the head coach. So all of these things you're dealing with. And if you looked at any of those, um, the reporting I did with Ben Boudreau, you know, one of the questions I, we talked about was how have you improved over your last, you know, six years or four, four years as head coach. And one of the things he said was, you know, I came in, I thought I knew it all. You know, I'd been a head co uh, assistant coach in this league for, I think at that time it was four or five years. And I figured, Hey, I'm a bright guy. I'm going to be able to figure all this out. And then you get a few months into it and you're like, 
oh my, like there's so much I didn't know. And that's really, I think what he's talking about. It's not the systems, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not who do you make captain? It's stuff like, oh my goodness, we're going out to play a game in Brampton and I only have 12 guys on the roster and I have to figure out how to feel the lineup tonight. And if you don't do that well and you lose, who does that reflect on? It reflects on the coach because a year down the road, nobody's going to remember, hey, you only had 12 guys. They're just going to look and see, oh, you lost eight to nothing at Brampton. You know, that, that isn't very good. So there's just so many things that coaches at this level have to deal with and it stays with you and it can cost you a job, you know? Not to put you too much on the spot, but has anything evolved with regards to the coaching search, like with who they might lean towards or any insight as to what they're looking for specifically? You know, we're still really early into it. I don't mind saying, because I reported some of these guys, you know, I really think that Ben Simon, who was the head coach at Grand Rapids, I think he's kind of the, maybe the shoot for the moon um, candidate. And maybe it's not even shoot for the moon, frankly. I mean, you know, he's still sitting out there, but he's a guy that coached the Cincinnati Cyclones to a, uh, a Kelly Cup before he went up to the AHL. Uh, he's an experienced recruiter. He's still a pretty young guy. He definitely knows Fort Wayne ownership. His assistant coach in Grand Rapids, another former Cincinnati head coach, Matt McDonald, I am fairly certain he will be in the mix. Well, we talked about the Florida Everblades. Their top assistant is a guy named Jesse Kalecci. Uh, There are actually some ties with him to Fort Wayne uh, going back to when he worked in the SPHL. um, That team has some connections to Fort Wayne. So I know they know each other a little bit. I think that Florida, another flagship franchise of this league, is sort of the model right now for success. And if you can get a guy like Jesse Kalecci, who also has experience as a head coach in the SPHL, I think he would be a big name. Uh, But People are going to come out of the woodwork. You know, there's going to be, you know, every, every player. time. It could be a player. Well, That's... I I think, well, here's here's why I don't think well, it will didn't be. Well, did Derek Nesbitt just, like, didn't, doesn't that happen semi-often, a player becoming a coach? Like a, with somebody that was with the team just Not just necessarily. Up? No, but, like, just in general, a recently retired player. Yeah. Well, Fort Wayne is going to want prior head coaching experience. Not, I mean, never say never. Ben Boudreaux didn't, but he was the first one without head coaching experience they had hired in right. decades, okay? Right. But, but here's the big re- Aside from that, if you fire a guy that just won a championship two years ago, you better be sure with the next good hire, point. Right? And yeah. you don't I didn't do mean, that. Just to clarify, so no jumps. I didn't mean like in some weird movie, like the captain would become the coach. I didn't mean like that. I more so meant like, you know how Martin St. Louis went from – you know, his, his, this is his first coaching gig. The Canadian's gone. He's coaching his kid in Pee Wee or whatever. I wouldn't be too, like, too surprised, maybe in general, maybe not Fort Wayne because the reasons you listed, to see, hey, you know, we think this guy was a smart player. He could be a good coach, whatever it is. Um, Pete, Pete MacArthur is how, how old, how much older than players? Well, that's right what now? I'm like saying. Brian you're Hawkins. Joking, you're joking about the captain can't hockey. become the coach. It happened with like three guys last year. I don't know if all of them were captains, but Chad Costello. Pete MacArthur and Jordan Lavallee Smotherman all directly. So you're not off base. I don't think it's crazy at all. You're just saying they're going to get experience. I just don't don't think it's going to happen here. I don't. That's a big leap that I think this particular market wouldn't make because, you know, I posted a a Twitter poll again, not scientific, but it was almost (laughs) 50 50 on whether the fans liked this move or did not like this move. I thought, they were going to like the move because it seemed like they were so down on Ben Boudreaux over the last two years, but no, 
people were pissed. So <laughs> you got to get the next hire right. And I think you do that with uh, somebody with prior head coaching experience. But I'll tell you this, every single coaching search I have been a part of, some huge name has come out of the woodwork. Last cycle, it was John Anderson, former NHL coach. He was in the mix. I can remember when Al Sims, former NHL coach, he was in the mix. He came here, he won three more championships or four more championships. I mean, you don't think former NHL coaches are going to come to the ECHL, but Fort Wayne and some markets like it, Toledo, Florida, maybe Idaho, they're such big draws for coaches because they know you go on to great things, you're going to have the resources. So I'm telling you, somebody big will come out of the woodwork and apply for this job. Speaking of coaching news, Bruce Ramsey's back in Wichita for his what will be his fifth season coming up. Uh, any surprise, or are you kind of out of the feeling they bring uh, Bruce back? You know, look, he's a friend of the show. I've known him forever. Uh, I think he's a, a good coach. I was a little surprised that it happened so early. They, they, because they haven't had a ton of success in Wichita, uh, mm-hmm. you know, over the last couple of years, but he is starting to build something. I mean, they did go to uh, the playoffs, had a nice run, took Fort Wayne to five games, I think uh, two years ago. So they are building some nice things, but you know, the thing about Rammer he's very consistent, but you know, one of these years he's got to get over the hump, but in Wichita, you don't have, the resources that you have in some other places. This is one of those markets where the coach is really doing a lot and he has done a good job and he's had an assistant with him for a lot of years, but a guy by the name of John Gerskis. And I might've forgotten to put him on my coaching list, frankly, because he's been around, he's been working with a good coach for a long time. It might be time for him to start getting a look from somebody too, but yeah, Bruce Ramsey's back. And as we said uh, uh, last week, I think it was Derek army's back right now. I don't know of any other, openings in the ECHL other than Fort Wayne. I think that would have to change at some point. Like we don't know what's going to happen with Dan Watson. Somebody said to me, boy, you know, there were a couple teams at the bottom of the, the standings, teams like Norfolk, what's going to happen there. But right now, Fort Wayne's that only opening as it is presently. Traditionally, is there ever sort of a secondary market where someone becomes available and then a teams like Cable can our guy and take that guy later in the year or do these things usually get sorted out by July? Um, yeah, I mean, if I'm understanding, yeah, uh, you know, I, there's. I'm also there's, mean, do you ever see it where someone becomes made available that wasn't expected later, whether it was from another job or whatever, and then it kind of starts a domino effect of of oh, guys getting jobs? Yeah, hundred uh, percent. I mean, things we're still pretty early in the process, and totally. I have absolutely seen coaches. I've seen coaches leave as late as. First week August. in September, really. I've right. seen them leave to to go on and, and get another job. And um and so yeah, there will be uh there will be a trickle down effect. So somebody used an example to me just the other day about Andrew Brunette getting uh a job in Nashville and how that would open up uh yes. an assistant coaching job in New Jersey, and then it's not crazy to think, well, an AHL guy takes that exactly and then those ECHL uh, guys are going to uh, move up, excuse me, to the AHL level. So 100%, there will be a trickle-down effect. You know, like where we're talking about Toledo. You know, we don't know what's going to happen with Dan Watson yet. Dan Watson goes up. That could cause a huge trickle-down effect because that will then affect who Toledo hires, which could affect Fort Wayne's pool of candidates. So I'm sorry I didn't answer well, but 100%, we will continue to see movement. And that's why I'm saying here we're recording on June 7th. Just because there's no openings now doesn't mean there won't be in a week or two. 
Let's get to our prospect of the week, Logan Lambton of the Florida Everblades. 16 points in 20 playoff games. Uh, he had another 10 in 12 ECHL games. Spent a good chunk of the regular season with the Chicago Wolves as well. Off to a very, very you know, big Cali Cup playoff. And probably someone you'll see get some in- enticing offers this offseason, I would think. Every year, it seems, there's somebody that has a great Kelly Cup final that most people have not heard of, and they turn it into something. Whether that's a huge contract overseas, whether it's an AHL deal, maybe even an NHL deal, it happens. Two years ago, there was a guy named Stephen Harper. Really, nobody had heard of him. He was a late bloomer. Uh, I believe he was a former um, uh, Prime Minister guy. Well, no, former U-Sports guy. He tears it up in the Kelly Cup finals. All of a sudden, he's getting huge offers from Europe. He ends up signing an AHL deal with the Chicago Wolves. Logan Lambden could be that guy this year. Now, I'm not going to tell you he's not totally on the AHL radar. He did play 37 games with the Wolves this year. Um, but here's the thing about Logan Lambden. He was, in the Cal- he was with the Kalamazoo Wings for hearts of three seasons. Kalamazoo has not been very good during that time. I happen to see a lot of him. He was one of those guys that I would sit there and watch and say, you know what? If I had a chance to steal him, he would be near the top of the list. Why? Very opportunistic, responsible in his own end. You will look at his plus minus ratings. They tend to be minus, but I would encourage you to consider the teams and the scenarios that he was on. But the bigger thing is opportunistic offense. In 21-22 with Kalamazoo, He had 27 goals and 50 points in 66 games. And that was a team that was not a particularly strong offensive team. Kalamazoo, and we talked about this, boy, it was was going up to the trade deadline. They knew they were not going to go into the playoffs. They were dumping players, which is sort of a weird thing to do at this level because it's not like you're trading them for draft picks or – or, you know, those things that we do in the NHL at that deadline. A little bit weird. You don't see that a lot. Logan Lambden was one of the guys that Kalamazoo fans lost. Some of them were not happy about it, and we're seeing why. Because what he's doing with the Everblades. He was pretty good during the regular season. Five goals, 10 points in 12 games. But in the postseason, 20 games, he's got eight goals and 16 points. He will get his nose dirty. He's got 17 penalty minutes. But... What I like about him is his scoring. So we talked about uh, game two, and I'm just bringing it up here. So again, it is tied at one going into the second period at Idaho. There are only two goals scored. They are both by Logan Lambden. The first was 50 seconds into the second period. That was directly off a faceoff. Draw is one back to him by Joe Pendenza, and he just rips it top shelf on Adam Scheel. And then late in the period, so only five seconds left, in the second period, Lambden at the end of an odd man rush. So what did I say before? It's how you start periods and how you finish periods. And Logan Lambden started and finished that second period with two goals. And that totally changed the course of game two. And that puts them in great position now to win this series. So talk about being opportunistic, stepping up at the right time. He's only 27. I think he's absolutely has to be on the AHL radar for next year. Well, he's also one of those cases where, you know, he was pretty good in the AHL when he was there, but around March, which is like ATO season and college guys are coming in, people get bumped down a notch for any team. But then when you're the Wolves who are independently running the AHL, there's that whole affiliation thing. 
it could be easy for a guy like Logan Lamb to get lost in the midst of things, but then to come down and have that big of a Kelly Cup, yeah, I think he'll get some big offers. If not, listen, I think whatever route he wants to go, if he wants to go to Europe or the AHL, he'll have sizable offers. Um, but I think a lot of teams will, will definitely be calling him for sure. Right, and, but, and I, yeah, I got to see who's got it. So I guess Florida would, would have his rights, and we're going to talk a little bit about the, you know how this process works. But that's one of the big things. When you get to the final, well, why would they have his rights, though? Because he's on ECHL deal. But beyond this year? They'll keep his, yes, they'll keep his ECHL. Let's just start it now. We're talking the next topic. Let's just start now. Okay. There is so much that goes into the construction of an ECHL roster, let's say. How to put one together is more nuanced than, frankly, I ever know. And I'm sure I'm going to learn right now with the rest of the viewers. But the reason I interrupted you there was you said that he'd be under contract, or I guess you meant his rights would be with Florida still. Why is that the case? Right. So this becomes a big thing, especially as we talk about prospects, is it is very relevant who owns your ECHL rights. And the the easiest way I can explain this in the most typical situation it comes up would be this. Okay, we just mentioned Stephen Harper from two years ago. Great example. Fort Wayne finds him in... I believe it was college hockey. I, I apologize if it was juniors, but I think it was U Sports. No, so, U Sports. He played at Acadia. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry. So, so many of these U Sports guys in Fort Wayne, they, I mix them up. Okay. So, Fort Wayne finds him, signs yeah. him to an ECHL contract. Then he signs an AHL deal with Chicago that year. Now, if Chicago's affiliate happened to be, I'm just going to say a team, happened to be the Iowa Heartlanders. Okay. And yeah. Chicago wants to assign Stephen Harper to Iowa because that's their ECHL affiliate. Well, there's a problem here. Fort Wayne owns Harper's ECHL rights because yeah. they found him. They signed him to an ECHL deal before an NHL team or an AHL team got involved. Now, this is very frustrating for the NHL and AHL teams because they sign a guy. They want to develop him. They want to put him with their affiliate. But think of it from the ECHL team's perspective. Well, we found him first. We signed him. We played him. We used him. We should be entitled to something. So there are two things you can do here. You can just kind of play along and trade his rights to Iowa for nothing, like maybe some cash, $50, uh, future considerations. Or you can hold tight and say, no, this is a valuable player, and we either want you to assign him to us or we want real compensation for him. You with right. me? I'm totally with you. The question, though, is how far does this go? Does this carry over from one year to the next? Okay, yeah. So typically, when yeah. you have an ECHL player's rights, you can squat on them for a full year. So A full calendar year or season? A, a full calendar year. So, okay. Sure, that makes sense. Yes, a full calendar year from when you begin the off-season process. It gets very confusing. So, no, I'm with you. It makes sense. Yeah, so it's Stephen Harper. So with Fort Wayne that year, when their season was done, the first thing you have to do is you, you um, hand in something that's called a protected list, okay? Similar per- to like ju- ma- major junior hockey, right? Where you list mm-hmm. players. Yes, you start listing yeah. players. So this year, the date, the date is June 8th. The first thing you have to do is a protected list. 
Now, I'll be honest with you. I think protected lists are totally useless and do nothing but, but confuse everybody. But I am told there is some legitimate clerical purpose to this. The protected list can be an unlimited number of players. Okay, so I'm just going to use Fort Wayne as an example for purposes of this conversation, because that's where I'm at. So Fort Wayne is sitting there and on June 8th, they have to hand in a list of protected players, but that list can be as long as they want. So why would you not protect every single player that you can? Okay, so that's probably what they will do. Now, there are some guys that I believe it's when the protected lists are put in, but it could be the season ending roster. And these are the guys that you're referencing. If there's somebody that you've been squatting on for a full season, he never played for you, but you didn't want to give up his rights or he went to Europe or you did all the things that we're going to talk about in a second to keep his rights. You're going to start to lose it this summer unless you bring him back. I don't remember exactly what that date is, but that's, that's your question. They squatted on somebody through the full season. Okay. So the next big date that comes up is called the season ending roster. So if you don't, for some reason, put somebody on a protected list, by the way, they're an unrestricted free agent. One reason you might do that is if it's written into a player's contract. For instance, they signed with you last summer. They said, I want to play in Fort Wayne, but one, one request I have is I, I want to be an unrestricted free agent next summer, so you can't put me on your, your protected list or season-ending roster, whichever they choose. I do see that happen every now and then. You with me? Yeah, I'm with you. One question, though. Um, for Let's say Joe Smith's rights expire um, after a full calendar year. Can any team protect them, or do they have to ask the player to be protected, or do they just list them? Like, is there a waiver wire? How does that work? If they did not play for you last season, if they've yep. squatted, you are an unrestricted free agent. They cannot squat on you in perpetuity. They can squat on you for one year. Um, okay. Even if they're saying keep, you know, keep me or whatever. It's that that's just, just the way it works. But there are ways around that. Like you could sure. you could sign a contract or something like that, but that doesn't happen. So uh protected list, if you're left on there and almost everybody will be, then the next key date is the season ending rosters. That date this year is June 22nd. Now, just one okay. little note, two days before that, all future considerations trades have to be done. There are always some that are sitting out there even at this time. So maybe you'll see a couple players' rights go here or there. More than likely, Domino's coupons redeemed. Yeah, I was going to say more than likely it'll be a washing machine or something like that. (laughs) So the big date, and this is the the pivotal period, begins on June 22nd. That's when season-ending rosters have to be put in. I believe the number of players you can keep is 20. So if you are not among those 20, you are an unrestricted free agent. If you are among those 20, the team has essentially two weeks to re-sign you, okay? Not totally, but it's in their best interest to do it within those two weeks. Because if they don't sign you within those two weeks, Mm -hmm. then there is something that's called a qualifying offer phase, okay? So that is how you really keep players' rights is by extending them a qualifying offer. So in Fort Wayne, let's just say Mark Rassel. This is a a pretty big player here. 100% they're not going to let him walk. He's a valuable player. He could go to the AHL. He'd be a top-line player on most ECHL teams. So they're probably already talking with Mark Rassel. What do we got to do to lock you down for next year? So 
if it goes well, hopefully they sign him in that two-week late June period. If not, what they will do is they will extend him a qualifying offer. That means the worst case here is we keep Mark Rassel's rights for a year. But really what it's doing is buying us a little time to negotiate the contract that works for everybody. But you've only got eight of those qualifying offers. So if you're a team like Fort Wayne and you're trying to keep, let's just say, 12 of those guys, something's got to give. You got to sign four of those guys before the qualifying offer or you're going to risk losing some guys through that qualifying offer phase. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So the qualifying offer, if you don't get one, then you become an unrestricted free agent. That two-week period is so crucial, though. So if Fort Wayne has identified 12 guys and they're able to sign four of those guys during those two-week period, then they're good. Because now we've got eight qualifying offers and we can extend them and hold their feet to the fire throughout the rest of the summer, or we can squat on them until next year. There's one asterisk though, and that is if you are a veteran player and that's where being a veteran player starts to come into um, real focus here. Did you have a question? No, I just made it, I was going to make a point of, we were talking before about how like coaches wear many hats, obviously in all of hockey after the championship, it's the off season pretty quickly, but like the Kelly cup winner potentially could be, could win and be celebrating like two days later, they've got to have a list or however many days it'll be. So I guess the the last question I want to ask just about it, and you know, I'm sure you have, if you have more to talk about for sure, but what I want to know was in terms of making these, is it like one of those ongoing things where throughout the year, I think they maybe keep something that ranks either their own guys who's out there, what they're looking for. So it's not just this sort of like, quickly made up scouting list or is it kind of case by case because the crop changes so quickly of who's available and who's not well i I think that you of course always have to have these running lists in your mind but yeah 100 percent. when you get to the summer i mean it's it's easy to sit there and say i want this guy and i want that guy and i want this guy but you have to know well what kind of team am i trying to put together are they going to fit into that mold you know maybe there's a coaching change like fort wayne are they going to gel just because i like this guy doesn't mean the coach is going to like this guy So there's a lot of factors, but yes, 100% in ECHL circles, you always hear people talking about certain things like, okay, we've got limited number of veteran spots. Are are we going to continue to use one of our vet spots on player X? Uh, Okay, is this guy going to be worth a qualifying offer? Or, you know, is he going to get offered so much money by Europe or other teams that we shouldn't even bother? You know, so Logan Landon, great example. So Florida could be sitting there saying, all right, he's going to command big money because he's had a big series. Do we even have a chance of keeping him? Do, are we already hearing some team from, from Europe is offered three times what we can offer? Because if that's the case, you may not even want to waste one of your qualifying offer spots because they're so valuable. Um, so just let me clean up this one thing. So veterans at the ECHL level, I believe it's 260 games. This is a huge period. So if they don't, resign them early in this period um you can only like you can make an offer sheet to you can make a qualifying offer to a veteran player but you cannot squat on them in perpetuity you can only squat on them for a certain window during this summer so that is why from the player's perspective becoming a vet is so crucial because it gives you some freedom during the summer to basically get yourself away from a team 
So in Fort Wayne, Anthony Petrozelli, last year, I think he was one game short of being a veteran. Probably pretty frustrating for him because he knew, you know, all right, they're going to be able to squ- like he was going to resign here, but, you know, it, it was like he didn't have the negotiating power for his contract. But the flip side was he also knew that, hey, Fort Wayne can only keep a, a, a limited number of vets. I want them to put together a really good team. So maybe he perceived it as good. But this year, now he's 100% a vet. He's got some more negotiating power. He knows that if Fort Wayne wants to keep him, they have to do it fairly swiftly and with a good offer because he can force his way into unrestricted free agency by, I believe it's July, like mid-July. So this phase here in late June, early July, this is why it's also pivotal to uh, be a veteran player. And one other thing that you should keep in mind when we get into all this is affiliations. You know, affiliations are going to direct how you put together your team, but they can also be your savior. So I use that example of Mark Rassel. Fort Wayne could sit there and say, well, you know what, Mark Rassel, he's going to command a lot of money and maybe we don't squat on him, but maybe what we do is we work with our um, uh, NHL and AHL affiliate, which in their case, Edmonton Oilers, Bakersfield Condors, if they can get them to sign him to a contract, then that saves the whole conversation about qualifying offers and whatnot. Good very stuff, confusing. Good it's very confusing. No, actually, no, it, that makes a lot more sense, to be honest with you. I, I think I was just a bit thrown off. I had I knew there was the list component of it, but I didn't think it would apply to someone like Logan Lamb did. That wasn't even a segue. I was genuinely confused what you meant by it carrying it over. But for this well, week... It, it gets confusing for me. Like some... Fans ask me all the time, what's happening with this guy and that guy? And it's like, you don't, there's no necessarily a central database that you can look up and say, well, this guy is on that deal. Yeah. And here's who holds his ECHL rights. And it can get confusing if a guy has been bouncing around in the AHL for, for some sure. period of time, you know, all season long, it could be some ECHL team that hasn't even played for, that he hasn't played for in 11 months that has his rights. And that stuff still has to be worked out. But from the ECHL perspective, you have very few cards you can play with the AHL teams, and that is one of them. So I sort of respect teams that do that and say, you know what, we need to get something for this guy. At this level, he's a really good player. But currency to it. Yeah, for it, sure. can, it can turn on you. Go talk to fans in Trois-Rivières. Like they've had, players say, they've had players there whose rights were squatted on, and they, it's blown deals for them, and they've had to go play elsewhere. And when you do things like that, players know about it. Players remember it. And then in the future, they become less likely to sign with your ECHL team. So it's easy for me to say, hey, squat on players' rights. But you can do so at your peril because you do want to rep as being a yeah. city that is very player-friendly. And if you do that too often, it can backfire on you. And it does. For sure. But for today's show, we're going to cut it there. Uh, I think we've done quite a bit on uh, – we've already started our off-season shows, it appears. There's not much uh, – not much else to get to this week, but anyways, thank you for listening to the Hockey News on the E presented by BetMGM. I'm Jacob, this is Justin, and we'll see you guys next week. Be sure to tune in.